This is the Star Coach Show with Meg Rentschler, episode 303. One of the things that I learned, and I think this is so perfect for coaching, is we would talk about the communication model. And you know, there's the sender and there's the receiver, and there's noise in between, right? There's internal noise and there's external noise. And we would just hit a little bit on the internal and external noise. And the more I learned about psychological first aid and other critical incident stress debris and things of that nature, I realized we were not emphasizing the right things. We needed to focus on the noise. How do you lessen the internal noise? How do you lessen the external noise? And notice I say lessen it or mitigate it. We can't get rid of it. I can't get rid of someone's grief, but I can hopefully lower it enough that they can hear the message I have to give them. And conversely, as the responder, my noise level comes down so I can hear what they're asking me. So I get that information. And when you think about it, isn't that what we do as coaches? Welcome to Star Coaches, the show for professional coaches that brings you coaching strategies, tools, and resources. Whatever your focus or niche, take a front seat weekly as industry leaders, decision makers, and innovators share their wisdom and expertise on the ins and outs of successful coaching. Now join your host, Meg Rinchler as she connects you with your star coaching potential. Hello and welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. We're dealing with a really critical skill set today, which is how we engage with people when they're in a state of crisis. And, and for our clients, that's going to be different reasons for different things that escalate emotions and escalate response. My guest today is going to be talking from a place of extreme in that he specializes in aviation disaster, and he's also a coach. He's going to be sharing some specific strategies with us that while he might be talking about them on the high end of the continuum, are very useful for your toolbox in whatever level of emotionality your client might be in at the moment. Because in my experience as a mentor coach and a coach educator, the concept of engaging with clients who are highly emotional because of a given situation can make some coaches uncomfortable. So let's engage in this discussion and figure out how we can appropriately and successfully engage without trying to rescue, fix, or avoid emotion. So we'll get more into that in just a minute, tell you more about my fantastic guest and what you're going to learn today. I did want to take just a minute to warmly welcome our founding members of the Star Coach community. I am over the moon excited to work with all of you, and we've already had some great engagement and interactions. So if being a Star Coach member is something that intrigues you, I'm going to be opening up enrollment again at the end of September. So watch for that. And once again, welcome Star Coach members. Thrilled to have you on board. Now, if this is your first time to the show, let me introduce myself. My name is Meg Rentschler. I am an executive coach who along the road of uh, engaging with my executive clients 
became a coach educator and a mentor coach along the way. So I do all of those things. And in helping coaches create the kind of impact they want to have and get barriers out of the way, that's where the Star Coach Show came along. That's where the Star Coach membership added onto that, as well as the work that I do with my clients who happen to also be professional coaches as well as the leaders that I work with to help them use coaching principles in their leadership. So welcome aboard. We are going to dive in today into a show really around our skills with my incredible guest. Ken Jenkins is a professional emergency manager with extensive experience in the planning, the logistics, training, deployment, getting in there with the response and what to do afterward because he's been working with aviation companies for years around crisis in response to aviation disaster. He has worked through 9-11 and so many more. We're going to get the details of that as he talks to us today. Ken has really provided strong leadership for over 30 years in the transportation disaster response area and recovery. His work has enabled him to utilize his collaborative skills under conditions of high stress, which is exactly why I wanted him to come on because Ken's not just a professional emergency manager, which is huge, but he's also a coach. So as the owner and president of his own emergency response company, and then going to get trained as a coach. He trains other people in how to do this. He's a facilitator. He's the author of several things, including his book, Resilience, Stories of Courage and Survival in Aviation Disasters. And what I really want to tell you about Ken Jenkins is what a great person he is. When you engage with Ken, you immediately feel his warmth, his love of life, his engagement with people. And today's show is, you know, I titled it Crisis Communication, or is it just being human? Because of my conversation with Ken, even in our pre-interview, as, as he stressed again and again, what we're talking about here is how we should engage with people, period, because we are human beings. He brings that up again in the interview. He is going to talk to us about how our coaching skills can give us the tools we need to engage with people where they are and help them move into the place that they want to be. It is my absolute pleasure and honor to introduce you to Ken Jenkins as we discuss this really important topic. Let's go to my interview. Ken Jenkins, welcome to the Star Coach Show, my friend. Hi, good afternoon, Meg. Thanks for having me. I love your show. Well, thank you so much. I am looking forward to spending time with you this afternoon. We're talking about sort of a heavy topic in around Mm. crisis communication and meeting people where they're at when they're in pain and how coaching skills and, and the whole presence and communication skills can be so key in that space. And I want everybody to know that Ken is a whole lot of fun to spend time with. So even though we are talking about a really intense topic, we're going to bring some joy into that because that's just what we do. 
And with that, I would love to start with what the heck brought you into trauma work to begin with? Oh my gosh, that would be like a, a two or three episode podcast. So I'll, I'll try to make it brief for you, for, for, for everybody. So I, I was with American Airlines for 26 years. And early in my tenure with American, I got an invitation to join a program that was just starting there called the CARE program, which was Customer Assistance Relief Effort. And it's working with families and survivors in the aftermath of an accident. And it was a long application process and it had to be approved. And, and I was approved. I don't know how I got the invitation or why I got the invitation, why I was selected. I mean, we had thousands and thousands and thousands of employees, but anyway, I was selected. That doesn't and, surprise me. You just exude something that is care and concern and empathy. Oh, thank you. You know, I, I don't think we all see that in ourselves sometimes, right. you know, that we do that. So I appreciate that. Thank you. And our, I was in the way it turned out, I was in the second class, the second training class. And our facilitator said something that in hindsight, I learned you just never throw out into the universe. And that was, we'll never have to use this training, but if we do, we'll be prepared. So this was 1993, Meg. And about three weeks after that training class, we had a plane that hydroplaned off the runway at DFW Airport. Everybody survived, thankfully, but there were a number of injuries. There were only about 40 of us that had been trained in care. We went to local area hospitals, worked with um, the survivors that were in the hospital. It was long before smartphones. People had pagers. So we were calling family members on behalf of people, working with the hospital administration to make sure that the medical bills came to the airline, not to the patient and things of that nature. We were activated for a few days and, and then came back and debriefed it and said, well, what worked and what didn't? And we went from there. And we went on from that date in 1993 to have eight fatality events from 1994 to 2004. Wow. And that included a number of accidents that were you know, like six or eight weeks apart. It included the two planes from American that were involved in 9-11 as well. I worked with family members in the first few accidents in were, I'd say family members says there were no survivors in, in the accidents that I responded to. And then from there, I moved within human resources where I was working into a department that taught the care program. And there were six facilitators. We did leadership development training for the company. And I was the only one of the six that had ever been activated for an accident response. So they made me the, the program manager of that course. And so I started teaching the course and was really embedded in the curriculum uh, and learning more about trauma and psychological first aid and things of that nature, while at the same time, we were having accidents and being deployed out to respond. Wow. As more of those occurred, a structure and infrastructure was built around, maybe we need to have an emergency response department that focuses on, we had emergency response, don't get me wrong, but a section that was for family assistance and station response. And I went into that group uh, as a senior analyst, and then became the manager of that program. And the rest is history. I never intended, I didn't know it was a thing. I always tell people that I just kind of fell into it. I love it. It's the most rewarding work I've ever done. It's the hardest work I've ever done, and certainly the most emotional work I've ever done. Right. So what's interesting as I'm listening to Ken share his story is that while he was a first-line responder, I was a therapist in the area at the time was 90% of my practice was American Airlines employees. And often it was the family members who after 
Ken was working with them would undoubtedly come into therapy. So I'm willing to bet without Ken and I ever talking about it, we probably know some of the same family members. And it's quite possible. Yeah. And it is incredibly rewarding and incredibly difficult work. I have never been frontline at an airline uh, disaster, have certainly been frontline in work industry disaster kinds of things. And it's, it's intense mm-hmm. work. So what, what you were doing and the work that you were doing, and you wrote a book about it. What's the name of your mm-hmm. book? The name of my book is Resilient Stories of Courage and Survival in Aviation Disasters. Wow. And it's, it's basically the eight events I worked at American a side note about those eight events, Meg, the airlines have emergency response teams today, family assistance teams, but a lot of the leadership of those teams have retired and new people are in, which is great. It's always nice to have new blood, but many people haven't responded to an event. And okay. so I wrote a book that is detailed and yet generic enough where I can at least have some of the lessons that were learned that for new people, they can read it and say, oh, I didn't think of that or I should be doing this instead of what I was doing before. And that was the purpose behind it. Love that. So with the concept of bringing coaching in, this is, you know, mm-hmm. the, this is a podcast for coaches, but I also believe that we can use our coaching skills in many different ways. And when we think about crisis communication, and then you choosing to go into coach training, get all your competency training and all those things happening. What was it that made you think, you know what, I'm going to add coaching to my skill set? I have to laugh and I'm sorry. It's kind of like going into emergency response. You know, I got this invitation one day to go and then my life changed. Right. I got, somebody told me several years ago, I should be a coach. And I'm like, I'm not, no, I don't want to, not doing that. That's not my work. And then a few months after that, I got a call from our now current president of ICF North Texas, who said, hey, I'm going to a coaching meeting. He worked with me at American, said, I think you should come. You would like our group. And I went and I loved it. And I went for several months and and then decided, you know, I facilitate training programs all the time. It would really be nice to learn more question techniques, questioning type techniques and layering questions more than what I already know. And so that's what prompted me to go into at least to a certification program. Um, I still hadn't intended on being a coach. I just wanted to utilize the skill set. So I go through the training program and, and there's a little bit about me that is a competitor. And I decided, well, now that I've done that, I should go for my ACC. And so in attaining my hours, I found that I really liked coaching. But I also discovered that what we do as coaches in in almost at its very core is what we were doing in family assistance. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how that those things that sort of get put in different boxes or different categories are actually so interwoven. Um, And I think sometimes we're so like, I don't know, obsessed with like, oh, this is this and this is this, when in fact, those skills are kind of universal. As a matter of fact, when we were doing our exploratory call, you said, we're going to talk about human skills and the way that we engage with people when they're in crisis. And then do you remember what you said after that? I don't. 
You said, but it's really how we should treat each other every single day. Oh, yes. And I couldn't agree more. It's like the the kinds of things that we're going to talk about today in the way that we are present and validating and clarifying and all the different things that we want to, how we want to show up when people are in need. Isn't that really the way we want to show up every day with the people that we Every single day. Yep. And you know, what's fascinating about that to me as well as, you know, and it is kind of that dichotomy, isn't it? You know, we look at it one way and we look at how we interact with other people on a day-to-day basis in a completely different light, but they're the same skills and techniques. And yet what I found was there were folks in the program that came through the class that said, oh, I don't know, you know, I don't know this whole empathy thing, if I can do that or validation or listening and active listening. And then they'd be deployed for an event and find they could do it. They would rise to the occasion. They would go out and do it, muster the courage. And I would say that they weren't even mustering courage. They were doing something they've been wanting to do their whole life anyway. And that was to connect with another human being. It's this such this deep level, if you will, of empathy and compassion. And we don't always take the opportunity to do that on a daily basis. And they got the opportunity to do it. The way that we talk with folks in what we're taught and how to talk with folks in the aftermath of an air disaster is how I want people to talk to me on a daily basis. And, and what are you taught? Right? What are some Just of listen. the key things? Yeah, to mm-hmm. listen. So it, it starts with listening because this is one of the things that I find that coaches sometimes fall into. It's, you know, when you hear high emotion in a coaching session, which happens sometimes, and believe me, it's okay to have high emotion in coaching sessions. That does not mean you have to refer that person for therapy just because they're experiencing emotion. Just want to make that note there. So what I, there's a couple reactions that I hear when I listen to hundreds of coaching conversations every year. Mm -hmm. One is an acknowledgement of holding the space for the client. Lovely. One is a complete avoidance and step over and just, I'm not, I hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. I'm just kind of going to barrel through that and just not acknowledge the emotion. And then the other thing that I see sometimes is the coach feeling compelled to rescue. Like somehow I've got to fix it. I've got to make it better client. And the reality is, and I'm sure you are well, I mean, talk about not being able to fix it. When you're working with a family who has lost a loved one in an air disaster, you can't fix it. What can you do instead? You can listen, you can hold the space for them. And can you share a little bit about what, how you engage in those kinds of tough conversations? Sure. Um, I, I'd be happy to, because it's where I think the work I continue to do in that field marries up with coaching. And the short story in the aftermath of an air disaster is the number one thing that most family members want is information. They want details of what happened, where their loved one is, when they'll have them back, personal belongings, all sorts of, of inf- why the plane crashed, uh, all sorts of pieces of information. Where the disconnect occurs is when they don't get the information. We come in as care team members of the airline, and we're like a concierge service. We, we're the go-between, the questions they have, and the right people they need to connect with to talk to. And in order to have those conversations, we do our best through our training to, in one course, for example, I saw uh, that an airline, I liked the, the term they used, it was called setting the stage. We call it, you know, setting the agreement or getting the agreement, right? Right, you know? right. 
It's here's who I am. Here's what I'm here for. Everything we talk about is confidential. If I don't have answers to your questions, I'll find somebody who does and get back to you by a certain date. It's honoring our commitments of what we say we're going to provide them. So you're building trust and safety with the, those It's people. building rapport, trust, and safety. And it's creating an environment. And this is the tough part. I mean, it's all tough, right? Because right. Of, of the event is how do you create a safe space for someone who doesn't feel safe because they just lost their loved one? Right. Through a horrific and event. It, because exactly because of a horrific event. One of the things that I learned, and I think this is so perfect for coaching, is we would talk about the communication model. And, you know, there's the sender and there's the receiver and there's noise in between, right? There's internal noise and there's external noise. And we would just hit a little bit on the internal and external noise. And the more I learned about psychological first aid and other uh, critical incident stress debris and things of that nature, I realized we were not emphasizing the right things. We needed to focus on the noise. How do you lessen the internal noise? How do you lessen the external noise? And notice I say lessen, lessen it right, or mitigate it. We can't get rid of it. I can't get rid of someone's grief, but I can hopefully lower it enough that they can hear the message I have to give them. And conversely, as the responder, my noise level comes down so I can hear what they're asking me. So I get that information. And when you think about it, isn't that what we do as coaches? We create the safe environment. We do our best to manage the noise internal, which are our feelings and emotions and thoughts and things like that and fears and vulnerabilities. And the external noise, like the phone ringing, like for, for our session today, I turned off the answering machine. I put on do not disturb on the computer so we weren't hearing dings and phone ringings. You know, I didn't want you to hear how many car warranty advertisings I get a day. Yeah. You know, turn that off because you don't want it to interrupt the flow of your conversation. Right. And those are all things we're taught to do. Right. And sometimes it goes really well. Sometimes it doesn't. But you do your best to manage those things is my point. Right. And I think that part of managing the internal noise is increasing mm -hmm. awareness about that, like acknowledging mm -hmm. what's going on and being able to, because when we try to ignore or push away rather than acknowledge that, yeah, I've got feelings coming up, I've got beliefs coming mm -hmm. up, I've got issues that are maybe I don't trust you because you work for the organization that this just happened through. I mean, you know, I'm sure that you had to create when you're setting the stage how do you how do you kind of deal with some of the beliefs that the the, the family might be bringing forward to you? Oh, all, all very good points. It's um, almost advantageous for us in this respect compared to even a coaching session in that when we would go work with and meet with families, typically we met them on the phone first and you could talk about, okay, you know, I'm flying from Dallas Fort Worth to Chicago where the family lived. I'll be there at such and such a time. When I get there, I will call you and we can then set up a time for us to meet. So there's that expectation. You're setting mm -hmm. up a time and you're starting that relationship of a routine. I'm going to call you at this time. And then you make sure you call at that. I was going to say, then right? you do Not, what you say you're going to do. Exactly. Not a minute after. You can right. be a minute before, but not a minute after or five minutes after. You want to be right there on time. And, and you do those things to help build that rapport and that trust. But then you have to honor it going forward, right? And keeping that going. And the thing about that is 
there's a psychology to the routine, whether it's it's the time of day that you're meeting all the time or reducing the noise, uh, whatever that may be. But part of that is all in the explanation of who you are. And, and I'd share with you this. And, and there's always a continuum, Megan. I know you know that better than anybody, right? There's, it's never an absolute. But for the most part, the family members didn't like us. How could they? We're the airline that had the accident that killed their loved one. But they were also willing to have us enter. We would go into their homes. Today, it's much different. Now we have a big family assistance center where all families come together. But in the early days of family assistance in the airline, we went to families' homes. But they wanted information so much that they were able to make a distinction. I had the mother of one pastor say to me, the pastor that died, she said, do you do this full time? And at the time, I didn't. I was a financial analyst with the airline. And I said, no, I'm a volunteer with the company. And when she heard volunteer, she was just like gobsmacked, like, who would volunteer for this? Right. And it kind of changed the relationship. Not where she thought, oh, we're best friends or anything like that at all. But a level you, of respect. You, yeah. Yes, ma'am. And, and that, that internal noise. Right. I could feel mine go down a little bit. And yeah. hers go down a little bit. It's like she knew that it was not comfortable for me. She certainly was in uncharted territory. She lost her daughter. We're going to navigate this together. And mm-hmm. we did that successfully based on, I would say, I'm, I'm looking at the um, the core competencies, how we co-created the relationship. Oh, excellent. Love how you're weaving in those competencies. So, so good. What about presence in a situation like that? Mm-hmm. When you are with someone who is needing information that you might or might not have, who is wounded and mm-hmm. grieving, how do you, what do, what would you say is the importance of presence in a situation like that? Well, it is, I think everything that we do is important. So it's hard for me to say it that way. Right. Presence is just as important as co-creating the relationship. And particularly in this respect, there can't be, or there shouldn't be any look of an interest, not tracking with the person um, and what they're saying or showing shock or alarm or surprise. You had mentioned before somebody's grief may or or somebody's actions, I'm not sure exactly how you phrased it, may be something different than what we expect. Right. right? And there are those societal differences and some are cultural differences. Right. And I can't, you do your best to show, not show shock or surprise. But in terms of presence, one of the things that we share with our team members, and I practice myself, and again, another luxury was that we typically went in teams. And so part of our preparation when we're driving to the house at nine o'clock at night is who's going to ask the questions or who's going to take the lead of setting up how this framework of why we're there, who's going to take notes, how do we explain why we're taking notes and what they're for. And if I get in a pickle or I feel like I can't handle a situation, and, and I'll share with you, in, in one situation, we were completing what's called anti, an anti-mortem interview. And it was for the medical examiner. It was like seven or eight pages of very detailed personal questions that would help identify the loved one. It was information that, that we gave to the medical examiner that they could use to help determine you know, somebody have a broken bone or not, or, you know, something dental Trying work to identify the remains. Yeah. Yeah. 
And we got to, for a female victim, some questions that as a man, I wasn't comfortable asking the husband of the pastor. I just wasn't. And when we got to them, I turned and I looked at the young lady that was my partner working and she was taking notes. She just looked at me and smiled and just picked up the questions. And we had worked that out. I said, if I turn and look at you and I have this, I said, I'm not sure what the look will look like, but it'll probably be like, oh my God, this I'm not comfortable here. Right. She just took it and ran. And then I started taking notes from there. And that was something that we could work together. The mm-hmm. point again here is have the plan ahead of time. So when you enter a coaching session in your presence, or I'm working with the family of someone that's grieving, anticipate what the questions are. So I know if I don't know the answer, I know where I can get them. But mm-hmm. all of that preparation lessens my internal noise so that I'm freer to think through additional processes and questions that, as they come up. And my anxiety level goes down. It doesn't go away. I mean, to some degree, and I think you would agree with this, you can utilize that anxiety to help you. Absolutely. Yeah. We certainly don't want it to go way, you know. There's always that sweet spot, right? That with with stress, there's a sweet spot with anxiety, you know, just like what's the sweet spot. And when you are in a situation that is uncomfortable, where do you see like the benefit of inquiry? Like does and I just, I'm completely, I don't know where you're going to go with this, but you're in a situation and your ability to stay curious and use open questions. What does that do in a situation like that? So I love that you said in the ability to use open-ended questions, because that's what we teach as well. There are purposes. There's a purpose or two for closed-ended questions, but for the most part, it's open-ended questions. And One of the purposes of the open-ended question, particularly if somebody's high emotion, whether it's high anger, which we could talk about anger. I I never really saw a lot of anger in terms of what I would think would be angry, but other types of emotions. The purpose of us asking high um, open-ended questions was to help the person focus on the question and not the emotion. But we also utilized validation as part of that is to acknowledge what you see happening just like we do in coaching. When somebody's voice drops and you say, I just noticed that your voice dropped or that you tilted your head down or that you got really quiet, you're validating that you're listening to someone and particularly in the aftermath of an air disaster or a mass casualty event, it doesn't even have to be an air disaster. It can be active shooting, school shootings, right? Is that power of truly listening to someone is so important. And I think as human beings, we want to do that naturally. We're scared of it. And for me, that was the easiest thing for me to do when I got scared. And I didn't know, I think your question was, if you get something that was was a challenge to answer and you right. wanted to be inquisitive or inquire, I did a couple of things. The first was instinctually, which instinctively, and I didn't know it was instinctively until it happened to me, Meg. I just got quiet and I got quiet because I was scared. And oftentimes I found that the question being asked wasn't one they were really looking for an answer for. It was rhetorical. They're just, Mm -hmm. for example, why would God do this to us? Right. I don't have the answer to that question. So you just hold space and hold silence. If they come back and, and say, no, really, why do you think? then I would have to come back and, you know, what, what, what would my answer be? My answer would be, 
I don't know. I don't know. Or I had in one situation, the sister-in-law of the passenger was asking why we were having to ask these questions about the identification process. And her question in trying to figure out how I can say this without being alarming was so unexpected. She just finally asked, well, how much basically do you have to look at to identify person? And we knew the answer to the question. And we're going to build our relationship on being truthful. And we shared that information and said, there really isn't much. There aren't intact people to look at in order to answer that for you. And -hmm. that's why these questions are necessary. And then that was the end of it. That was Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay. Because now I understand why you're asking such detailed questions, right? Their minds going around and and many of our clients may be doing that. You know, I think with, with my coach sometimes. I'm sure they're like, oh my God, you're like a pinball in a, in a pinball machine. You know, I'm going bing, bing, and all over the place. Just sit back and let it go and try to make the connections and ask questions about those. It comes to that place of trusting that the other person is whole and resourceful. So when you trusted mm-hmm. the family member mm-hmm. by saying, I'm going to be honest with you, there aren't intact bodies. We, you know, we, we need this information to be able to identify as much. You're trusting that that other person is going to be able to take that information, that it's most important to be honest and upfront. And I think sometimes as, as coaches, we forget that it's a partnership, that we can trust our partner with, you know, that they can take the question where they need to go with it, or they can mm-hmm. take what we say and apply it to with, if we're not attached to what they take and do with it, then they'll take and do with it as they need. So that was just kind of what came up for me when you were talking about being honest and forthright with a family member, even with a very difficult piece of information. And it may, and I think we've all experienced this as coaches too, where sometimes you're not really sure what question to ask Mm -hmm. or how to respond. And you may need time to do that. In this particular situation, as I mentioned before, it's a continuum. If there was some intuition, and and not like we ever use intuition in our coaching, do we? Never. All yeah. right, never. You know, we're being intu- tongue in cheek, in- people. We do yeah, use like intuition in, in our coaching. I, yes, I, so I use my intuition all the time. Right. Um, it's a good data point. And something as sensitive as the story that I just gave. If there was something that said, "I'm not sure that person can hear that message yet." then I might step back and say, I don't have an answer for your question, but I'll get one and come back to you. And yes, I'm not telling them the truth right then, but I might check with a family member after that I Mm -hmm. do think can handle that based on our interactions and say, this is the information. Are they ready to hear that? And some of that's based on intuition and observation. Right. right. Which is, again, back to communicating effectively and listening to our client. And what are they telling us outside of just the words? Absolutely. And being able to respond to the whole person and take in all of the details that we're getting to be able to make the best decision we can in the moment, because we don't have silver balls. Right. We're not you know, clairvoyant, but we can certainly go with our gut, go with our heart, go with what mm-hmm we believe to be needed in the moment. Ken, this is just so good. Let's just for a second, you talked about and being in and that you didn't have to deal with a lot of anger, which people might be surprised listening 
But when you did have anger, how did you find the best way to engage productively with that? You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't share and close this loop for, for at least my internal noise, Meg, on this is in the very first accident I responded to that was an all fatality event. And I was working with the husband of the passenger. His wife died on the plane. And then there was the wife's family. So we had two sets of families that we were working with. And he said to me the very first night that that we met, and we we're going through all of the questions and things that we had to, to ask or were asked to ask on the medical examiner's behalf. And he looked at me and, he, and, and my partner and very quietly said, this just makes me so angry. And there was no uptick in his voice. There was no difference in modulation. The pace didn't change. The cadence didn't change. And I remember thinking in, for a, a second in my head, if this is your anger, I can handle this, right? I mean, I'm like, oh, this is not the fist pounding, you know, right. I'm going to stand up and yell at you. The next day, I'm meeting with his mother-in-law and she asked how that meeting went. And, you know, and, and I told her and I said, she asked how he was doing. And I said, at one point he got very angry and she said, but he was very calm when he said it, wasn't he? And I said, yes. And she said, don't let that fool you. He is very calm, but inside he's really very angry. And I said, you know, thank you for sharing that with me. I mean, I really appreciate that. I never saw anything like that. Right, right. When we do see whether it is anger or high anxiety or remorse or whatever it is, we we would, and what we would share and what we practiced was to practice empathy and validation. And those are two words that I think sound really easy, but aren't really easy. No. Yeah. They might validation. Be, yeah. A nice little so, word, but it's got a yeah. lot to do with it. Yeah. It, it does. It, it, you know, but it's so powerful, Meg. It's, it's amazing to me that the validation piece, boy, I, I go back and forth on whether or not it's even more important than the empathy, but I think together the two are just a really a good dose of, of powerful communication. And the validation is acknowledging what you're seeing and what you're hearing. And so the first thing would be, to acknowledge to the person, you know, um, Mr. Jones, or if you're calling him by the first thing, John, I can see you're very angry. All right. So I see it. I can hear the anger in your voice. Validate it. You have every reason to be angry. And then comes your open-ended question, what can I help you with right now in terms of an immediate need that you have? So anger stays up. But now they're like, what do you mean immediate need? You know, now I'm going to engage in a conversation, right? So here comes the next question. What kind of questions are you thinking of that you need answers to right now? And then it might be, you know, and if they don't have any, I can help you with this, this, and this, giving them something to think about. But the goal is to have a line of questioning so that as you're questioning them, the anger doesn't escalate. It may stay where it is. We'll start to subside some because they're starting to focus on something. Same thing with somebody that's really, that's crying. You may have to go talk to someone else in the family and let that person have the time that they need, right? right. Might right. be the case. Because we, we can't fix it. We can be there. We can, and I love, you know, validate because people want to be seen, heard, understood. Even if you can't make it better, we can, mm-hmm. you know, I see you human being. Mm -hmm. I see your pain. I see your Mm -hmm. frustration. I hear your anger, whatever that is. And then Mm -hmm. the concept of empathy and being able to see through the lens that they're looking through. I get it. That doesn't mean I can fix it. That doesn't, but I'm seeing it. 
the way that they, I understand, I can see through the lens that they're, they're looking through so powerful. Love the analogy of the lens because so many people, I think, and you've probably experienced this too, think that one, there's such a difference between empathy and sympathy, of course, but some will think that the empathy is I have to jump right in there with them. And it's like, no, no, no. If you do that, then you're not going to be able to serve. Right. Right. That doesn't mean you can't understand. It doesn't mean what right. they're experiencing right. or feeling in an airline, for example, where everybody's, you know, we had a hundred thousand employees, but you would thought there were only five and we all knew each other. Right. So it felt like a close knit family. We're experiencing our, our grief too. And we'll deal with that when we're back at our command center for now, I'm right. going to take care of these, this these individuals or mm-hmm. this person in front of me. And the way that I'm going to do that is I certainly can see why they would feel the way they feel. I might feel that way too. You know, so well and said. Through, it's through that validation. And, and, and the beauty about validation, in my humble opinion, is it's so underutilized in our day-to-day lives that, you know, I have more friends that come to me and talk to me just to talk because they say, you know, you're a good listener. And which is really not, I mean, I love that, but it was not something I was good at at the beginning of my career, if you will, until I wanted to get my opinion out there, man. That's what everybody wants to do. Now I find that I learn more about what's going on in the world by listening to what people have to share. And I'm much more in tune to people's body language and eye movement and things, because I think you get a lot of meaning from that. Oh, and then so say, what you see and what you notice, people are taken aback, like in a good way. Oh, somebody's paying attention to me. We'll love it when you pay attention to them. Oh, they sure do. And I don't know how often when I've reflected back something I've seen or heard, so people will say, did I do that? Or, oh, did I say that? Because that reflection is just so valuable in holding up that mirror. So Ken, you know, I absolutely adore you and can talk to you for days. I'm wondering if there's anything as we, as we close out our conversation about the element of crisis communication and how that is is really so similar to what we do as coaches. If there's any mm. any thoughts that we've left on the table about that. No, I, I would. Well, that's a great question, Meg. I'm going to leave it with this and say crisis communication isn't crisis communication. It's just everyday communication. And it's that old radio analogy of adjusting the volume up and down. When you can't hear, you turn the volume up. When When it's too loud, you turn the volume down. And us, you and I as coaches and as colleagues and spouses and friends, we have a lot of power in how we navigate our conversations and particularly as a coach. And I just, I really would hope that people, particularly coaches, can see the the value that they bring through those core competencies that ICF has. There's a lot of power to those. Absolutely. And, you know, as I listen to you today and, and we have this conversation, I just have so much like... I feel so honored that I was a part of your coaching journey, even a little bit in <laughs> being your mentor and hearing just the value that you bring to our profession. So thank you for that. Oh, Meg, you can't leave me with that because it wouldn't be fair if I didn't get to say back, you're the best mentor ever. You're wonderful. And thank you for it. It's the, really the main reason I agreed to be a guest on your show is I've learned to listen to so many of your podcasts and the empathy and the validation and your inquiry and curiosity are a gift. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a joy. 
So there you go, another example of how our coaching skills show up in the world and can really benefit us and the people with whom we engage. If you'd like to know more about Ken Jenkins and the work that he does, go to starcoachshow.com slash 303, starcoachshow.com slash 303. In his members-only content, Ken shares his favorite assessment tool to use with clients and what makes it his favorite tool. Now come back next week and visit with me one-on-one. It's time for us to do a solo episode. So I'm excited to re-engage with you one-on-one. I've missed my one-on-one time with you and we'll get back to that next week. If you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving a rate and review. I absolutely love to read what you think about the show. So wherever you listen, consider leaving a rate and review so that more coaches find us. And until next week, this is Meg Rentschler wishing you the very best for your coaching success. Have a fantastic week.